We are go. This is Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown, joined by Dr. Nicholas Han, who goes under the epithet of change agent for humanity. Those are very big shoes to fill. So I love somebody who comes in with that sort of very brave title. It sounds like you've thought this through very carefully and you like a challenge. So um, Nick, welcome to the show first. So. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And, you know, great seeing the feedback on the uh, presentations here at Singularity University. We'd love to hear about what the key themes are and um, why we need a change agent for humanity in the first place. So maybe we can start a little bit about your background. You've got a really fascinating story. You've lived all over, originally from San Francisco, no, originally from California. Mm -hmm. Um but you've spent a lot of time, and I think this is brings us around to the, the, the bigger story as well. You spent a lot of time in Africa as well. So how did you get your start? Let's go there first. How did you get your start, a bit of background in Africa? So it alludes to maybe, you know, the kind of areas that you've worked in and so on. Sure. Uh, undergraduate, uh, during, I, I wasn't such a great student, so I had to take night classes to get through things. And I'm in one of those night classes, and the teaching assistant comes in. A young woman about age 25 and says, hey, if anyone after this class wants to learn about the Peace Corps, come talk to me. So here I was, this young guy, ready to go right into pre-med from my genetics degree. And she piqued my interest, went and talked to her. And fast forward, I joined the U.S. Peace Corps and got randomly assigned. I could have been assigned anywhere in the world. Got randomly assigned to Kenya as a school teacher in a remote village. And uh, one thing after another, I just ended up really never professionally going back to the US until recently at Singularity University. So was your career already marked out for you before the Peace Corps? You said you were oh, studying yeah. genetics and you obviously had that sort of path laid out and then bam. Clearly, I was going to go be a doctor and yeah. do that standard thing. And then when I went to Peace Corps, I realized there's a whole new world out there for me. Yeah. And I could make, I didn't know it at the time, but make a career out of making the world a better place. Right. You speak Swahili as well. Yes, I do. Right. So it's not like you just went there and spent a couple of years as a tourist. You actually immersed yourself in the culture as well. And I think this is really interesting, the, the, the bigger picture, because you know we're talking a lot about exponential technologies here mm. in Singularity University. People might be thinking there's a bit of an academic diversion from the real world you know how does this really apply but you know how this apply to somalia or how this apply to kenya for example and you know when you can demonstrate that people really get it because this is not just about for the privileged few within the world so maybe we can talk a little bit about how did you move from that space in africa in the peace corps to singularity university where's there's a missing gap there the gap would be I ended up uh, through one of the degrees that I studied, Geographic Information Systems and Remote Sensing, ended up working for the United Nations on what's called food security analysis. And through that path, ended up having developed this global standard for food security analysis called the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, which now any country in the world that does food security analysis, they use the same scale, like a Richter scale for disasters. And it was when I was sitting in my 
Food and Agriculture Organization office in Rome, running this big global project in 35 countries around the world, feeling like, you know, I've actually kind of peaked out here. I've shot my mental everything at this, at this topic, and I need a new challenge. Surfing the internet, which I know you're not supposed to do at work, but I was surfing the internet, and I came across this thing called Singularity University's Graduate Studies Program. So I applied, which was a 10-week program, thinking, oh, I'll just go take 10 weeks and go back to my job. Well, I got rejected from the 10-week program, and two weeks after getting the rejection letter from Singularity University, they said, actually, could you come and be an advisor? So I went, spent 10 weeks as an advisor in the program, and then right time, right place, that's when, this was 2012, when Singularity University was um, really realizing their thesis about technology and solving the world's biggest challenge. They had the first part really solid, technology. They didn't have the second part so solid, meaning let's lean more into how technology can solve the world's biggest challenges. I was in the right time, right place, and they said, look, Nick, can you now be our director of Global Grand Challenges? So that led into me eventually being the managing director of the program that I got rejected into. <laughs> A fait accompli, yeah. That's karma for you. And then vice president of impact at Singularity University and faculty chair of Global Grand Challenges, which is where I am here today um, speaking with you. Lovely. That's a fantastic story and a great sort of moral of never give up. So Never give up and you don't know your path. Yeah, exactly. Your, your path yeah. is uh, really only emerges as long as you uh, keep your head up above water. Well, I, I would, you know, I'm, I'm curious with yourself that when you looked at Singularity University and you had this sort of wealth of experience in food security and applying it to very you know, uh, it, to markets where many, many variables, and it's not, for example, like a technology rollout in a controlled area like Singapore, a small city mm -hmm. with a very sort of like, you know, easy to track and measure population, right? You're, you're dealing with, you know, developing economies mm -hmm. where in some cases, you know, technology is very rudimentary. When you saw what was happening at Singularity University in the technology side, that first part, and you came from the world of application, very practical, very hands-on, what was it that sort of, where was that light bulb moment for you where you realized, wow, this could really apply here and also maybe deal with some of the, the pain points or what wasn't working out particularly well? Mm -hmm. When I heard Peter Diamandis talk about this democratization of technology, this thesis that we have at Singularity University that once technology becomes digitized, it goes through this process of being demonetized, dematerialized, and democratized. <clears throat> it was the democratized process part that really piqued my interest. And the idea here is these exponentially changing technologies, whether it be um, gene editing, or blockchain, or drones, or digital manufacturing are increasingly available to anybody anywhere on the planet. So our standard sequence of development uh, was ripe for disruption. And that's when I immediately realized, actually, my paradigm, my way of thinking about development is, is radically going to change. And the role that I'll have in this world now is catalyzing that change as quickly as possible. 
getting these technologies, well, for one, informing the right use of these technologies to solve the world's biggest challenges, but also getting these technologies as quickly as possible in the hands of people who are facing the challenges themselves so they can drive their own innovative processes. Mm. Yeah. Can we talk about that in the context of food, for example, Mm -hmm. because we all can relate to it. We all understand the challenges. And then maybe in particular, this idea of food sustainability, because I know one of the conversations that came up in the presentations and the afterwards was about, for example, the Impossible Burger, Mm -hmm. you know, clean meat. That has really become now a proper conversation that people are looking at for example, this is realistic. This is one idea. You have, for example, vertical farming and all these new technologies coming out. And even you talk about blockchain, food provenance, all these sort of people going into the whole ecosystem of food and dealing with individual, very localized problems and disrupting them. What's going on at the moment? How can you sort of help us understand that sort of very top level view of what's changing with food? and how we're consuming food, how we're thinking about food, how we're distributing food. It's moving towards uh, more sustainable, cheaper, healthier, personalized food systems. Our existing farming systems, including uh, small farms, because of the democratization of technology, will now increasingly be able to use um, technology like soil sensors, uh, satellite imagery of their small farms, um, drones, and the like. So smallholder production is going to get uh, um, more efficient. Mm. Our entire food systems, you mentioned in vitro or clean meat, is actually one of the technologies, in addition to renewable energy, that I personally am most excited about. Mm, mm. Because it will have the biggest benefits for humanity in mm. terms of carbon emissions and and the like. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's a, 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 a whole sector that I'm particularly excited about. In fact, I, I use the phrase, um, the meat industry is going through their own Kodak moment right now. Mm, Whereas Kodak got blindsided by digital photography when, side note, they're the ones who actually developed the technology. It's just the C-suite people were so blinded they couldn't realize the the revolutionary, transformative, disruptive technology that they themselves had created, the meat industry is going through a similar sort of disruption right now, their, their own Kodak moment, where it's difficult for vested interests in the meat industry to realize the disruption of the price performance of meat when it's grown in a lab. A fraction of the water, a fraction of the energy, a fraction of the land, no disease propagation, mm. cheaper cost, and no killing sentient beings. You can't beat that value proposition. Once we get over the, what Mark Post, one of the inventors of in vitro meat, uses a very scientific term called the yuck factor. Once we get over this mental barrier that people might have around uh, lab-grown meat, the yuck factor, and once governments get comfortable that it's not GMO, it's actually It doesn't fall into the GMO category. Once governments get uh, comfortable with the regulatory environment, it'll be a massive and fast disruption of our existing meat industry with very powerful vested interests existing there now. But if you look at that from the perspective of climate change, it's the best thing that could happen. Hmm. How would that translate, for example, to a place like Africa, where you know when we're talking about these very cutting-edge technologies – 
people may think, well, that's fine, but you know, it'll be a few farms in the valley or a few farms in North Europe or maybe down in New Zealand. How, how can your smallholder in Africa, for example, who may not have the resources, even the knowledge of this, benefit from something? Because maybe for him, you know, smallholding meat in the traditional way is cheap, it works, and, you know, they don't need to then go and learn about new technologies. Well, it depends on which farming system you're speaking of. Uh, so if it's the Maasai uh, culture where they have free-range cattle, um, it's actually a very sustainable uh, farming system. If it's the uh, uh, slaughterhouse-type farming system, uh, industrial meat production, which you will also see in, in Africa, that costs too much, it uses too many resources, etc. The same list that I just gave. There's no reason why a um, what we would consider a high-technology clean meat factory or laboratory, why that couldn't be located in Nairobi or Dar es Salaam or, or wherever. It's, um, the, the amount of technological expertise that that requires is really not that advanced. Um, it's just a matter of mindset again. Mm. And it's the, the quicker we get over this idea of trickle-down innovation and rather innovation coming from a 720-degree perspective, meaning think of it, it's coming from everywhere. Everybody any, everywhere on the planet has the ability to innovate. The quicker we get past that linear trickle-down innovation mindset, uh, the more quickly we're going to solve the world's biggest challenges, but also the more quickly we're going to be relevant. Um, yeah. How, so there, there has to be a few things that happen before we can have that kind of culture where innovation is coming from everywhere. If we were to go back to the Kodak story, mm -hmm. I think that gives us insights into what was broken. You, you know, you mentioned like the C-suite, you know, it was Kodak had the, the know-how and the technology. They invented the technology and Kodak could have been Apple. It, it could have moved into mobile. Mm -hmm. It could have developed digital yet. I think even even if you listen to the, the CEO would say, like, if I said to my C-suite that it was raining outside when it was sunny, they would believe me. It's a very top-down, you know, king of the castle style. And he who may be key in innovation as well. So it's very top-down innovation. And, you know, maybe that was the culture that created the, the Kodak moment, its own DNA. So when you take that to, for example, like meat production, do, you know... Does the future then just come from the outside where people don't have that DNA and then have no vested interest, like you say, and nothing to lose? Let's just try that. We're a small startup. We're nimble. We're agile. If we lose, we lose. You know, we lose the angels' money, but we move on. Whereas with a, you know, industrial farming, you know, that has all the vested interests that go with it. So, you know, my point is, is that can those vested industries reinvent themselves, or does the change have to come from the outside because those people think different. The mental barriers aren't there. Small innovators have, that's their comparative advantage. And they're more uh, able to act nimbly and uh, take an experiment and fail. Uh, large corporations typically find a resistance to failure because of the bottom line pressure for the next quarter's uh, returns. Um, 
that's kind of a truism. And there's a solution to that for large corporations as well. Uh, it's something our colleagues at Deloitte call innovation at the edge, allowing <clears throat> small teams to act like entrepreneurs, startups within a large corporation, and allowing them to fail. But if they succeed and they, their product, whatever they're creating, starts to be viable, then the corporation can move toward, can gravitate towards that direction. Um, but it's a mind. It's it's a strategy as much as it is a mindset, and it's starting with if you want to if you want to address this and you want to be innovative, it's making sure you're solving the right problem. In the case of Kodak, they were in the paper cleaning business. They were making lots of money because they clean your paper. In fact, I think they were even almost giving cameras away for free because they would develop your film. Yeah. And back then, if you remember, if you're as old as I am, yeah, yeah, I remember very well. rolls of film of, wow, 24 whopping photo photographs. You were very judicious about which picture you took. <laughs> and Kodak was very happy about cleaning that roll of film for $5 or $7. That was not the business they were in, even though they thought they were. Photography is about experiences and sharing mm. experiences. Had they really memories? Yeah. memories. Yeah. Um, had they started from that vantage point, then they would have realized, ah, digital camera allows people, would allow people to share memories almost infinitely. So let's take that back to me. I'm not sure many people are in the business, want to be in the business of killing animals. It's not, that's very few people get pleasure out of that unless you go hunting for sport. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong or whatever. Mm. I'm not going to make a value judgment on that. I won't go there. I don't need to go there. But I will say this, the general population, I doubt, wants to kill animals for their food. What they want is good, healthy food. And they want it at a good price. So if you start from that perspective and now work backwards, you very quickly come to the conclusion, our industrial meat industry is not working for us. It's actually doing a lot of harm. It costs... Um, Beef is, is by far the most significant. Agriculture is 25% of all greenhouse gas emissions. So it's causing harm for us. Uh, we need better solutions. So then we get in vitro meat or protein-based, uh, plant-based protein perspectives. Hmm. So it's making sure you're solving the right problem. Another example of that was um, the movie Jaws. Remember the movie Jaws? Well, when Jaws was being built, the shark was this robotic shark that was so stupid looking that the, the directors couldn't, were not convinced that it would have any, uh, it, it would work on screen. And they scratched their head and said, okay, well, what, what, what are we going to do about this? Now, if the problem that they wanted to solve was make a better shark, they didn't have the technology really to make, they didn't have CGI and whatnot to make a great looking shark. Rather, what they did, they said, really, the problem we want to solve is to scare the bejesus out of people. So let's just give a flashing image of the shark, not really focus on the shark. So if you think back at Jaws, mm. you don't get to see the shark. Yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> it's just so a little true. fin occasionally. So what they masterfully did is said, the problem we want to solve is to scare people. So let's now figure out how to scare people. Um, so I, my point is, Check yourself. Check your assumption. Make sure you're actually solving the problem, uh, the, the right problem. So where does that come from? I mean, you describe yourself as a change agent for 
all of humanity. And maybe somebody can go in with more a, a more sort of near-term objectives within maybe the food industry, like you say. Um, you know, maybe not. Nobody's in the business of, of of killing animals, right? You know, that is not why they're in it. However, they're in the the business of creating good quality food, and you know, all in in a humane and maybe even uh, you know an ethical way. Yet, you know, wh where does the change come from within those those industries? In the sense that I think, you know, if I work for a craft or I work for a Frey Bentos, for example, you know. I'm not the CEO, you know, am I on board with this? Is it me that should be involved in creating change? And if so, what do I do? You know, because I get, you know, Nick, what you're saying, I'm so on board with that. I, I'm not here to do that. I'm here to, you know, why I thought I'd get involved in food to make a difference. H how can we create crazy? You talk about democratizing innovations, you know, how do we, you know, how do, how do these people take the first step in, you know, claiming that democracy, if you like? Well, it's coming up with a convincing argument to your your C-suite team that um, a you need the space uh, to to innovate and the, the space to experiment. Um, B convincing them that there are some trends that allow us to see beyond the horizon, um, such as exponential technology, such as some profound demographic and economic trends that are happening in the world. That if you start to look at those from a beyond-the-horizon perspective, then it, it invites new products and services. And one of that, those big trends that you hear from us at Singularity University is solving the world's biggest challenges are the world's biggest opportunities, market opportunities, um, from a financial perspective and from a purpose perspective. So I would say it's convincing your, your uh, leadership. And if your leadership won't listen... There's always startups. change your leadership. Yeah, change. find a different space to do mm -hmm. that. Right? Mm -hmm. do you, who's getting that right? I'm, I'm, I guess when you look at corporates, for example, they always look at each other for the case studies. You know, which corporates are getting that right in creating those spaces and you know creating that internal change? And it might not necessarily be in food, but you know, I think the challenge is always those are the stories that convince others to get on board. Mm -hmm. Because if mm -hmm. these guys in our sector are doing it, we're on board as well. We'll follow them. Mm -hmm. So who, who sort of who do you respect to think is is heading in the right direction here? One example of that is a um, a big hardware store in the United States called Lowe's. It's a large. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be out here, but think of a very large hardware store, and um, they have built an innovation unit within the company that's allowed to experiment. And they were the first ones to have a robot greet you at the door. Uh, they're also the first company that claims that they are the first hardware store in space. So they're going to create a 3D printed catalog of, first of all, all the things, everything that can be 3D printed in the store. So people can order things digitally and have them print them out at your local 3D shops. So you don't actually have to go to the store. But they're also already anticipating uh, 3D printing objects in space. So imagine you're in space and you're a spaceship that needs to needs something. You'll go to this place in space and get a Lowe's printed object. Um, 
they're thinking way yeah. ahead. I mean, we're talking decades. Now, obviously, that sounds farcical right now, but that's the mindset that their C-suite is embracing. It's not to be left behind, but actually anticipate what's coming ahead, even if it seems farcical. We know there's going to be economy in space. We don't really see it right now, but there's going to be a booming economy. So that's an example of a company that's already anticipating that mm. and claiming that, quote, space in space. That's fascinating. How do you create a culture that allows that to happen? Because there, there may be a point where you, you can argue that's too ahead because I've got yeah. to go back to the shareholders and show them quarterly results. So there's a balance. There's a balancing act to play there, isn't there? Sure. They, um, by having intermediary steps that are viable, like 3D printing objects in your local neighborhood, so you don't actually have to go to the Lowe's store, but they've already created a digital catalog of the things that can be 3D printed. So then you go to your neighborhood 3D printing shop, or what, what will happen sooner than that is you're going to have 3D printers in the home. So rather than go to the store, just get on Lowe's digital catalog and say, I need this pipe connector. Boom. You'll pay to have that digitally printed at your own personal 3D printer. So Lowe's is thinking about the intermediary steps, but they're also thinking big picture vision. And the way they do that is they've created an innovation unit within that's allowed to be creative and uh, take risks and fail. I want to ask a little bit about that in a minute. I think there's this interesting narrative which you've identified about like you mentioned with Kodak about what business are we in and you've talked about with food for example what business are we really in and even with Lowe's you know are we a hardware store really right so how, how do you you know looking at that how do you sort of analyze that and say well are they really a hardware store now now that they maybe in the future won't have an inventory and they're just producing catalogs. Mm -hmm. How, you've got to go in and, and be quite radical in your thinking here, haven't you, about what the framework is or the, the context of this company is. Yeah, you, you do. Um, and that means thinking about what's inevitable in terms of technological trends, where they're going, and thinking about what's inevitable in terms of humanity's needs. And the intersection of those two allows you to start to plan for that space. Mm. And that is uncomfortable because usually we're thinking about just the opposite. We're thinking about um, the next available uh, market opportunity or quarterly profits, and we design for that. Mm. But if you really want breakthrough disruptive innovation, you actually work backwards. What's inevitable and then come back to what's um, practical. Right. That's why it helps to have these kind of events where you can see the horizon. Or this is what Singularity does, right. is, is we allow people to, uh, un to, to unleash their creative and innovative potential, uh, create uncommon partnerships mm. with people and organizations that you don't normally work with. Uh, we encourage investors to be with technologists, to be with government officials, to be with entrepreneurs, mash, to be with artists, to mash them up together. Uh, so yeah, these kinds of events are um, uh, liberating in terms of what we normally see as uh, constraints yeah. on innovation. I like that, uncommon partnerships. Mm. There's a whole story in that in itself, isn't there, about yes. innovation and how, I mean, you've seen, for example, like with Suruki and the um, wisdom of the crowds, how, mm. you know, diverse groups of people from different backgrounds are uncannily more accurate predicting yeah. the number of beans in a jar than, you know, 
all the guys are all from investment banking and so on. So there, there, there's something in that. And I think that is what the mechanics in a way of innovation, like, you know, putting people together and, you know, rather than innovation as a strategy, how it sort of plays out in, in daily interactions. And I, I want to sort of preface that because I guess, you know, that, um, you know, there are people here who've come to this event and then that, then have to go back to the real world, if you like, of their job. And this has been really enlightening and stimulating. Yeah, I'm a bank and I'm going to take this information away. You know, can I really think about redefining what we are? You know, we're a bank. We're 180 years old. That's what we've been doing. You know, I can't then go to the, the board and say, we've got to think about this differently. Or can I? You know, how, how do you take this kind of information and make it work in the wild, the real world where the, you know, the rubber hits the road? Mm -hmm. the, the, the easiest path is to have your C-suite people on board. Um, we find it very valuable to do programs with the C-suite so that their minds are opened up and they encourage this sort of innovation. Um, and not only encourage it, but demand it from from people in middle management and whatnot. A middle management person who comes up with a bright idea that doesn't have leadership who understands the disruptive power of technology will find it very frustrating, and they're likely going to leave and go to another organization that allows them to fulfill that potential. Um, that's why, fortunately, Singularity University attracts uh, C-suite level people as well as middle manager people um, to create that frothing innovation environment. Mm. We were recently at a program and uh, one of the senior C-suite people got up in front of his entire staff and said, look, my biggest concern right now is lack of imagination. So, wow, what a beautiful organization to work for. He's just given us license yes. to think absolutely. absolutely crazy. But he's also concerned and he should be. His real concern is lack of imagination. We need to challenge, check our assumptions, check the way the status quo, anticipate where exponential technology, where, where technology is changing at exponential rates, which is so difficult for us humans, even us SU faculty who think about this on a day-in, day-out basis have difficulties appreciating the pace of exponential change. Yeah. Um, and that, that really is the role of a leader, isn't it? Where they set the tone and they remove the fear of taking risk within an organization and mm. say, it's okay. That, that C-suite exec who stood up and said that had basically given the green light for people to say, go experiment, go, go and do some crazy stuff. Absolutely. You know, and you've got my, you know, my rubber stamp on that, right? And the key part to that as well, you say because these technologies move so fast, we cannot have an organization where it's driven from one person at the top, going back to Kodak, for example, the only way these organizations can survive and thrive is if innovation comes from everywhere, mm -hmm. even if it's the guy in the mailroom or, you know, the guy working in compliance or in tech. So 100%. how do we, just sort of taking this away on the C-suite side, how do I make that happen? What do I do? You know, what are, you know, what can I do Monday morning? Do I gather everybody around and say, go experiment? Because I'm fearful as well that that could backfire. You know, you've got people like creating challenger brands within the organization or 
How do you work that? You create uh, skunk teams, um, innovation units that are allowed to operate like startups, as I, as I mentioned earlier. You you wouldn't want that to be an instant disruptive force throughout your entire company because if you do have quarterly earning calls and whatnot, you have to meet those. I'm I'm not I'm not naive of that. What I am proposing is resilience and radical innovation opportunities. So you maintain your, your, your core business, but create a safe space for innovation to happen. Um, and that might, I mean, you could do that in any number of ways. You might have a, a period of time each year that X number of employees get to operate like a startup for two or three months, uh, protecting IP that comes out of there, et cetera, et cetera. There's any number of ways of doing it, but it needs to be built into the culture of the organization, and it needs to be encouraged from the C-suite. And that's why C-suite people should take SU programs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just to put in that plug. <laughs> well, no, exactly. I think challenge themselves and step outside those uncommon, uncommon partnerships right. and see things from the outside. Just sort of rounding up, though, how, how do you sort of ensure that it doesn't become innovation theater where we've seen this, like corporates, they practice innovation, they do the skunk works, but it's yet yeah, it's more of a PR exercise to keep people happy rather than actually, you know, create real radical change. Is there sort of some anything like advice that we can take away? Because I'm worried that this may just become an interesting folly within our bank, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, results matter. Um, you, you can put incentives around, uh, it's actually incentives have to work both ways. Incentives around, uh, successful results, but also incentives around uh, experimentation. You have some organizations that actually reward failure. So mm. if you say, this is how many times I fail, they reward you. I don't, I'm, I'm not encouraging failure for failure's sake, but failure for learning. Failure to say, what did you learn and get out of it? So that you're always moving forward. Um, I mean, that that's, in, in, in terms of, strategies going forward it's creating the right safe space for people to experiment not encouraging failure per se but encouraging learning and constant iteration of ideas and ultimately things have to be successful in the marketplace that's the ultimate measure of success it has to has to serve a market need um, and it has to be something from a company's perspective financially viable from my perspective, something that's actually improving yeah. the situation of humanity. What a lovely point to end on as well. Dr. Nicholas Han, everybody, thank you so much for sharing your vision sure. and your work and a bit of background to yourself yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, some great stories there. Some great advice for people to take away. You know, And I think the challenge then is uh, keep the momentum coming. Keep the momentum going. Look, these events... Obviously, there's the content, the knowledge, but the people that you meet are going to challenge you. Those uncommon partnerships again, people from different sectors, different walks of life, different levels within the organization as well. That creates that diversity that ultimately feeds innovation, sure. the democracy of innovation, if you like. Mm -hmm. So it's been a real pleasure. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much for sharing that with us today.